but actually sometimes doing the thing that's right can cause huge <laughs> huge damage and there's a very good reason why it's not done before and trying to pick up on that as a leader can be quite hard and so I think as a leader it's about how do you tap into that wider community of people and it's not just employees it's much broader than that to kind of inform those strategic decisions that you want to make because I think if you try and do that in isolation it just doesn't work. morning, good afternoon and good evening folks. This is Ben Morton and a very warm welcome to episode 101 of the podcast in which we are joined by Professor Adam Bodison, who is the CEO of the Association for Project Management. Adam joined APM as their CEO in September 2021. He has a non-exec director portfolio that includes being chair of the corporation at Coventry College and a trustee at two multi-academy trusts spanning 80 primary, secondary and specialist education settings. On top of that, Adam is also a visiting professor at the University of Wolverhampton and prior to joining APM, Adam held leadership roles in several membership organisations, including as the chief exec for the National Association for Special Educational Needs. Now, in this episode, he shares a fascinating story about applying for that role, despite the fact that he didn't meet a number of the essential criteria specified in the job ad. So if you're thinking about going for a new job and you're not quite sure you've got all of these skills and experience, this is a fascinating episode to listen to, folks. And talking of this episode, it is another really rich conversation where we discuss, amongst other things, the importance of flexing your leadership style. We look at building relationships across all levels, inside and outside the organisation, and the value of buying people lunch, and much, much more. But before we get into this episode, please do take a couple of minutes to visit my website at www.ben-morton.com, where you can subscribe to my newsletter and get a two-weekly roundup of the latest podcast episodes, plus heaps and heaps of additional leadership development resources. Now though, and without any further delay, let's get into this week's episode and my amazing conversation with Professor Adam Bodison. Adam, a very warm welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us today. And first of all, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I've just returned from a well-earned holiday, and so I am uh, at full speed back at work and delighted to be back. And uh, how are you generally when you return from from holiday? Do you come in and manage to, to stay relaxed, or do you come back and have that daunting feeling that some of us get when we look at the email inbox and think, oh Christ, I've got 300 emails to plough through. What's what's your return to work like? Yeah, my return to work is generally quite good. In fact, I would say my problem is actually taking a a break from work in the first place. I I very much enjoy my time at work and I find it hard to switch off. By the time I've usually switched off on holiday, it's time to come back to work again. (laughs) Yeah. So here here we go. I guess we've gone completely off tangent, even before I've asked the the first question I planned to, to ask you. Do you tend to 
switch off on holiday or do you sort of check your inbox occasionally? Do you set aside like specific chunks of time and days when, when you would do that? I think what's behind the question, I remember a time many years ago and I was quite militant in my view that when you're on holiday, that's it, you switch off and don't look at your emails. And my wife was the opposite. She would want to check every couple of days because it gave her a sense of calm and confidence that she knew vaguely what was what was going on. And then a few years later, I got to the point where actually I realized it was better for me to every three days to have a little quick look and, and stuff like that. So what, what does that look like for, for you? Are you a cold turkey or are you a, put some structure around it type of person? It's a really interesting question. I think it depends very much on what type of holiday that I'm actually on. So I try to have one holiday each year, um, usually around about the summertime, which is very much a family holiday. And I'm focused on the children, focused on switching off myself. And on those holidays, I try as far as possible not to look at emails and check things uh, as difficult as that may be. Whereas if I'm actually, uh, for, for example, just taking a week off and I'm doing some DIY around the house or that type of thing, yeah, okay. then I think that's a different that's a different type of thing. And it's very much more like the situation you, you've just described. I think the other reflection I would have is that it's changed for me a little bit over time, depending on what types of job I've had. And I think the more you get into kind of leadership roles, the more those jobs are, I suppose, a way of life rather than a nine to five job. Yeah. And when it's a kind of way of life, uh, it's harder to switch off because, you know, the ideas don't come during the working hours necessarily. You get a great idea in the middle of the night or when you're in the shower or something like that. Or lying on your sun lounger on your family holiday. Well, quite. But but equally, I think you do get that flexibility the other way. And that's the other thing about leadership as well, which is, you know, when you've got to go and attend the, the Christmas play for the kids or something, you get that flexibility to kind of dip out of work. So I, I don't I never see it as an intrusion that work kind of filters into my private time because I think sometimes my private time can filter into work time. So probably overall, I, I would say it balances out. Yeah, I love that. And uh, kindly, you've mentioned the the L word, le- leadership, which <laughs> nicely segues me back to what was my planned first question, which is the one I normally ask at the start of every episode. And I always say it's an easy question to ask, potentially hard to answer because it's so broad. But what does leadership mean to you, Adam? Well, when you said you were going to ask me this question, I, I, I thought long and hard about this. And, and I started by thinking of it as almost like the, the kind of interview question that you get. You know, what's your leadership style? I must have been asked that question many times in, in interview. And, and it's interesting. I think I've, I've developed my stance on this over time. And, and I think it's not so much about leadership has been one constant thing i don't think if you if, when you say to me what does leadership mean to me if i tried to describe it as one thing i think i would be doing myself and leadership as a concept a disservice and, and my reflection was i've gone from answering that interview question by trying to define myself as a particular type of leader or defining leadership in a particular way to an approach which is more about adaptability and it's more about taking the right approach at the right time for the person that you've got in front of you or for the people that you've got in front of you that particular time that said i think there are some kind of constants that flow through that which i've kind of learned sometimes the easy way and sometimes the hard way going through my career so one of those i think is around pragmatism 
So I sometimes talk about you've got to do what's right rather than what's easy. That's a really important thing about leadership. Yeah. It's not just about, you know, coasting and you want to do the thing that's right. But actually, sometimes doing the thing that's right can cause huge, <laughs> huge damage. And there's a very good reason why it's not done before. And so I suppose what I've learned is the flip side of that, which is pragmatism, which is, yes, you've got to do what's right. But you've also got to do it when it's the right time to do it as well. And trying to pick up on that as a leader can be quite hard because you don't always have the insights into every part of the organization that your customers may have, that your employees may have, that your partners may have. And so I think as a leader, it's about how do you tap into that wider community of people? And it's not just employees, it's much broader than that, to kind of inform those strategic decisions that you want to make. Because I think if you try and do that in isolation, it just doesn't work. And that feeds into my final point, which is around visibility. I've worked for some leaders who have been very visible and sometimes slightly too visible, you know, when you want to get on with the job, and, and equally those who are never around at all. I don't know, you'd have to ask the people I work with about which, which extreme I, I, I'm at, but I try to be very visible because sometimes it's those conversations that you have, if you like, in the margins. It's not the intended conversation has helped me make this decision, but it's something that you just pick up in the corner of a conversation, a passing comment almost, that can be the most insightful thing. Uh, and it can really help you to be a, a better leader because you understand the community of people you're, you're working for, really. Hmm. Adam, there's so many little nuggets in there I'd love to ask you about. And um I'm worried I'm going to forget some of them. So let's let's start with the most recent one because otherwise I'll forget that. I think that point around being visible and picking up on those comments you hear in the sidelines is, is so important, right? And it reminds me, I, I've spoken about it a few times on the podcast, that, that show Undercover Boss. I think whilst it's very formulaic, mm. there's so much sort of truth and wisdom that comes from, from that program. And linked to what you said, I, I do think that as we get more senior in organizations, it becomes harder for us to, to hear those conversations and hear the reality and the truth. Because a lot of the time, people want to give us the good news, tell us what they think we want to, to hear. So we, we can miss out on that. And it's really important, isn't it, to keep your ear to the ground and create channels where that stuff can, can get to you. Yeah, it's the kind of the yes people problem, isn't it? You surround yourself by people who are like you because you think, well, you've done well. You've got to a leadership post, so you want other people like you because they're going to do well as as well. Mm. And one of the things I realized quite early on, actually, in my kind of career was that I needed to surround myself by people who are not like me. And in fact, I intentionally try to appoint people who will challenge my own thinking. And of course, sometimes as the, as, as the boss, if you like, you will have to say, well, no, we're doing it this way. And that, that's, yeah. you know, part of the course. But equally, having your thought process challenged and having your kind of outcome and decisions challenged in a healthy way, I think can be very, very constructive. And I think it keeps you on your toes, actually. Mm -hmm. It stops you being complacent as a leader. So I'm very much about that now. In fact, it reminds me of a situation recently where we were appointing a member of staff not in actually my current organization, but uh, a different one. And we were appointed a member of staff and we got to the kind of final few people and, you know, we had a three or four appointable people, if you like. And the question then came to, well, which of these individuals is going to be the best fit for the organization? <laughs> and it was a really interesting conversation because the way this question was asked was that we needed to find somebody who would fit in with everybody else who was already here. And of course, at the same time in the organization, we were also having a conversation about how important diversity is. And, and I suppose my challenge to people in the room now was, 
well, if we just get people who fit with what we've got now, how are we ever going to become a more diverse organization? And it was a real, there was a tension there, right? Because you don't want to intentionally appoint somebody and put them into a situation where they're almost alien to the culture. But equally, if you don't do that, you're never going to become a diverse organization. And so it presented a genuine leadership challenge but also a kind of hr challenge i suppose and we, we did appoint the most diverse candidate who wasn't at all the best cultural fit if you like but we appointed somebody who was as close to the culture that we wanted to become rather than the culture that we were and by the time you've done that after two or three or four appointments of course it gets a lot easier the first one is hard so i think you've got to make sure that that person understands the situation you're putting them into and that they have the support to make it through but that's the way you really change a culture of an organization reminds me of probably one of my favorite moments from from doing this podcast with my conversation with the former chair of stonewall and it was one of these real sort of drop your, your pen or pencil moments. She said, actually said, um, which said when I was chair of Stonewall, said I would actively look for and recruit cultural misfits. She said, I'd look for people who shared our overall purpose and vision and, and beliefs, but actively look for people who were culturally different. Mm. So would get that mm. real challenge and diverse thinking. He said, and that made her job as a leader, very difficult. It made chairing those meetings quite difficult at times, but she said it was, it was absolutely worth it for the like the breadth of ideas and kind of innovation that, that came after those, those conversations. No, I understand that. That makes sense. Yeah. The other bit I wanted to ask you, again, it, it resonates because I've just finished reading a book called the, the Prime Ministers. You mentioned timing early on, and it's about making the tough right decisions as opposed to the easy wrong ones but you mentioned timing is is key as well and that was one of my big takeaways from this book about the prime ministers knowing when to enact a policy when to make a change when to make a a decision because timing is critical right it is and sometimes you can see as a leader that the only way through a particular uh, situation is to make a particular decision. But if you get the timing wrong and you don't bring a particular group of stakeholders with you, it fails. The decision fails. And sometimes you might only get one shot right because once it's failed once, then other stakeholders might not come with you next time. So I think there's something there about how you kind of stress test the decision that you're going to make so it's uh, it's it's not a surprise when you make the decision in that sense but it's also about as you say the timing of, of making sure that everybody is on board with that decision by the time you make it hmm. and how do you go about doing that personally is it kind of a team of advisors and confidants around you is it kind of giving yourself time and space to reflect well both of those things are, are obviously true sometimes you will hear from Uh, middle leaders in the organization, for example, about where certain teams are at in terms of their thinking. But in terms of getting the stakeholder buy-in, you you know, we mentioned before the kind of in the margin conversations, this is where I think these are really critical because I'm a big advocate of taking people out for coffees and at the lunch and everything else and you know they said there's no such thing as a free lunch it's probably true <laughs> uh, um, because because what you do in, in in those conversations you can build up uh, a good relationship with people you can really understand where they're coming from why they have a particular view on something i always try and put myself into the other person's shoes and think 
if I was in their situation, what, what what would I think and why? Because once you understand what they're thinking, it's much easier to, if you need to shift their thinking, to move them to, to another place. Equally, sometimes you do that and you realise your own thinking is wrong. Uh, yeah. And that can be quite helpful uh, as well. But but this is one of the things, you know, Ben, I think it's been a challenge in the pandemic because, of course, it's not been so easy to have those kind of water cooler conversations, if, if I call them that. And so I think we've got quite um, clever at, at finding other ways to have those conversations uh, it's getting a bit easier now that we can see people in, in person again but i think people were getting quite clever about for example using the traditional telephone a little bit more to have informal chats with people and crazy right text messages and all kinds of you know retro uh, technology if you like we'll be writing letters next <laughs> well do you know it's interesting you say about letters but sometimes if i really want to um, get a message across to uh, say another leader in another organization and I think maybe they maybe they won't see my email if it comes through because it gets lost in hundreds mm-hmm. of emails, or maybe they won't pick up on my social media. Sometimes I will write a letter, and that will cut through in a way that other things don't. So I think that the, the letter is a tool not to be dismissed yet. Yeah, I'm with you, absolutely with you. Again, this is a, quite a nice segue that you gave for me to to bring us back to something else that I wanted to ask you, which is when we spoke prior to, to recording today. I really got a sense that sort of being brave and being bold in terms of making bold moves and decisions has sort of been a, a bit of a theme to your career and journey. I wonder if you could elaborate on that a, a little bit for us. Yes, very happy to. And I'll give a, a, a kind of very specific example. But before that, I, I suppose I should probably say something about why I feel I can do that without the kind of risk that comes with that. And very early in my career, I trained as a secondary school mathematics teacher. And the reason this is important is that there is a national shortage of mathematics teachers. You know, almost in every area of the country, almost every school is looking for maths teachers. What that means is that I always have in the back of my mind, if I make a really bold decision and I lose my job and I've got to get income really quickly, I could go and find a job as a maths teacher the next day. Um, (laughs) So whether that's made me too brave or too bold, I don't know. But that's probably what started me off on thinking, actually, I can afford to take a bit more of a risk here than than perhaps I might might ordinarily do. I guess the point is you've never never had to go back to being a maths teacher, right? No, not yet. Um, so we'll, we'll see. We'll see. I do like maths, but uh, I'd, I'd like to, to hope that if I did go back, it wouldn't be in those kinds of circumstances. <laughs> but uh, when, when we spoke, we talked about um, the move I made when I moved from uh, running a teacher training department uh, at a large university to a national charity, which was called NASEN, which was the National Association for Special Educational Needs. And if I say a little bit about why I moved, first of all, because I think it's, it, it, it's relevant, because I was running a, a large university department in a large university. It was a great job, but it was kind of safe. If I did a really good job, I was uh, congratulated and told, do an even better job next year. And if I did a really bad job, uh, then you kind of get the slap on the wrist and you kind of get told, well, don't do that again. You know, So there was no real risk, if you like, but equally no real reward. And I find that quite frustrating as a leader. I kind of almost wanted to live or die by the decisions that I made. So I ended up moving from there to this national charity. 
And this national charity, although it was a national charity, it was relatively small. It had eight members of staff. And in fact, they were struggling at the time. Um, their membership numbers had been declining over a number of years. They had around 3,500 members at this point. And they were also struggling financially um, to kind of, uh, you know, get, get, maintain a surplus that they could reinvest and, and grow as an organization. So uh, they'd, uh, they'd had a chief exec for a long time. Their predecessor to, to myself had only been there a relatively short time. Uh, and so that I think they decided that they needed to do something different. Um, but what they decided that they needed to do was to cut the costs. That was the different thing. Uh, and because it was a special educational needs charity, they decided we need somebody who's a special educational needs expert. And I certainly was not one of those. So I went for the, for the job interview with the chief exec of this organization. It was me with all of these special educational needs experts. And when I went into the interview room, one of the questions that I was asked was, Adam, what on earth makes you think you have any credibility at all applying for this role, bearing in mind you don't know anything about special educational needs? And I said, well, the first thing that gives me confidence is the fact that you've shortlisted me for the role. Why did you shortlist me for the role? And there was a kind of look around the room, you know. <laughs> but essentially, my pitch to them was this you've got access to bucket loads of, of of special educational needs experts. You know, you've got a whole membership full of them. You've got some of them working for the organization. You've got some on the board. You've got lots of them that you can draw on. But actually, to turn an organization around is it is a different skill set. You need somebody who understands education. I can bring that. And what I'm saying to you is that the way to do that is not to cut the costs. So we had quite a big debate, uh, you know, between myself and the board about what was the, the the right way to do this. But ultimately, the board did back me. They did appoint me. And um, what we essentially did was invest the reserves because, in my view, this is what reserves are for. You know, they're there for the rainy day when you really get stuck. This is when you invest your reserves. And my argument was this. If we actually end up investing the reserves and it doesn't work, we've at least gone out really spending all the money we had meeting the charitable objects that we've got. And we've gone out mm. in a blaze of glory doing the right thing, you know, not just kind of buying an extra few couple of years and a slow death, if you like. But equally, if, if it goes well, it could be the beginning of a new, better, bigger organization. And happily for me and for everybody else, it was it was the second of the two. And over that five years, just to put it into some context here, we went from, if you like, eight members of staff to you know, 40-odd members of staff. We went from a membership of 3,500 to more than 35,000. We completely changed the revenue model for the organization to avoid this type of situation happening again and we diversified it so that we actually made the membership which is the main source of revenue when i started free and we had other revenue sources government international development business development products and services and so on so we were much more resilient as an organization and we could service far more of those members who, who who wanted to access that service. So it was a, a bold and a brave risk. It, it, it could have been career suicide, I suppose, if it had gone wrong. But I think morally it was the right thing to do. Uh, and I think looking back, uh, I don't think really there was any other decision that could have been made. Adam, I very much get the sense chatting to you today and previously that you're sort of a what's the worst that could happen type of man because you mentioned it sort of with being bold and brave there like if it didn't work I, I could always go back to being a maths teacher not that in any way I'm applying that's a, a bad or worse worse option but you've got that's the backup if it doesn't work out when you're talking about going for the job with NASA and saying to them spend the reserves 
if it doesn't work, what's the worst that could happen? We've we've gone out kind of doing what the charity is set up to do. Is, is that fair? Is that often your your mindset? Do you use that when you're sort of looking to manage manage risk and make decisions? I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but I, I think you're probably right. The mantra I sometimes say to myself is, uh, um, is uh, you know, hope for the best and plan for the worst. Mm. Uh, and, and so I think that's probably where that kind of thinking, well, if this doesn't quite work out, what will, you know, what will we do? But equally, I know that for organisations to grow and develop and really put themselves out there, they've got to do things which are innovative and radical and, and different. And the thing I've learned is you've got to be honest about that when you kind of go for these jobs in the first place. If you turn up at the interview and you try and pretend that, you know, you'll leave everything as it is, nothing to nothing to change here, and then you get into the job and try and be radical, it's going to go wrong. And it comes back to that point earlier on that we talked about, about how do you bring people with you? If you're really clear when you go into the room, look, this is a great organisation. But in order to take it to the next level, I think we need to be radical and we need to do A, B and C. They might say, no, thank you. Fine. You can go and find another organization that wants to, to, to go on that journey. But equally, if they say yes, you get that board buy-in right from, from the outset. And, and that's half the battle. Hmm. And Adam, as well, I guess you're living, breathing testament to the fact that you can change sectors, you can apply for a job when you're not necessarily an expert in that field that you can apply for a job and be successful if you don't even meet all, some of the essential criteria that, that are listed but for anyone who is thinking about sort of making that move but is perhaps hesitant because it's a different sector what would your sort of advice be be to those people so I think there are two points that you've raised there one about essential criteria in job descriptions and and the other which is about uh, sector switching so I'll, I'll deal with the sector switching one first it's really interesting for a long time there have been a group of people that have always switched sector but almost invisibly they're the people i call the professions so if you think about the accountants and the marketers and the it folk and the lawyers they're almost sector agnostic right they can yeah. do their job in any sector so they've been switching sectors for years right i mean they've been doing this i think some of us we take a job in a sector and we almost put ourselves in a sector box. Nobody else is putting us there. But we think, oh, I use my, an example for me. I trained as a secondary school maths teacher, but I actually then went on and taught in a primary school. I had no primary school training whatsoever, but actually I was a teacher. Mm. And the qualification you need is exactly the same in terms of what you get. I mean, the content is different, of course, because you're dealing with different things. But actually, nobody else had put me in in the box that said you can only teach in a secondary school. Actually, I could teach in a primary, and it went it went well. So, so I think the same is true of sectors. I think people should be fairly brave and look at the professions and how they've switched sector. And in fact, we we are seeing it more often now. You know that I've seen the statistics about people changing changing jobs now far more often than they did maybe 30 40 years ago and i think if you if you change jobs and you just try and stay in the same sector you're going to run out of jobs pretty quickly that you can, you can do i think but that moving between sectors is actually something that adds value 
because what you do is you see how a particular sector operates and some are very commercial some are very kind of values driven and and all different types of approaches but when you take that knowledge and you lift and shift if you like into another sector and then reapply that in in the context of a new sector some things won't be appropriate of course but you can you can bring real value with you you can share that knowledge and 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 expertise across sectors so i think we're not just doing ourselves a a credit there we're actually doing a service to those sectors and to, to those professions as well um, the other point we, we talked about before you talked about the kind of essential criteria and, and again it's something i find really fascinating i've had people say to me before with my kind of mentoring hat on and people say adam i'm thinking of applying for this job but i only meet 19 out of 20 of the essential criteria they're never going to interview me or something like this and i say even if you only met nine out of the 20 criteria if you think you can do the job apply for the job and i have two kind of reasons for saying that one is if you already meet all of the essential criteria then probably the job is not going to be very easy for you where's the stretch you know what you're yeah, going to learn yeah, in yeah. that job uh, so, so i think you probably should be looking for the for the kind of the next job if you like and and, and the second thing i would say is the job description if you like is what the organization thinks they need from a person what they don't know is what people have got to offer that they haven't had sight of or they're not aware of. So I say to people, yes, you might only meet 19 of the 20 criteria, but maybe there's five other criteria they don't even know they need that when you turn up an interview, you can convince them that it's going to be useful for them. And what are they? The list itself is not bounded. You can add things to that list that you think are essential for them. And it's always an interesting conversation when you turn up and you say, I think there are some other essential criteria that you need uh, for this role. And they are A, B and C. By the way, I've got those. <laughs> yeah. And that makes for a great conversation in an interview. Yeah, I, I t- totally agree with you. And I think probably if most of us are, are quite honest with ourselves, I think in most organisations, the listing of essential criteria, it's not always that that rigorous, right? It's not given perhaps as much attention as we, the candidate, might might think has, has gone has gone into it. So it's a fairly often a fairly loose loose set of characteristics, I think. It is, but it's also a wish list. If I could have my ideal candidates, they'd have all of these things. Well, you know, if there were that many ideal candidates, we wouldn't be having to advertise for the job, right? We'd just pick one. So so if you're like, they're, they're saying what they want, and then you come along and say, well, this is what I've got to offer. If you think you can add value, go for it. Yeah. It reminds me, like 12 months ago, almost to, to the day or, or the week, I brought a new woman into my team as my community manager. And she pretty much, like, deselected herself after our first conversation she went oh, Ben I kind of really don't have experience in this and this so I really don't think I'm the the sort of person you're you're looking for and I'd, I'd met her and learned all about her skills and experience and knowledge I went Susie I, I don't care there's, to your point the stuff you bring is stuff like I wasn't particularly looking for but but I want it so like please please will you come and have another com- conversation it's uh... well but that's the interesting thing isn't it because I I think if you get the right person for, for any job, I think at any level, you can learn skills. You know, if they haven't, if there's a skills gap or a knowledge gap, you can you can fix that, right? That's easy to fix. Yeah. In fact, in fact, it's almost what you you'd say in the interview. I, I've got this gap. Please, can you support me in my first six months to plug that gap? If you get someone with all the right knowledge and skills and experience, but they're the wrong person then frankly you're stuffed <laughs> you yeah. know and, and that's really hard situation to sort out uh, so i always go for the right person and everything else you can learn 
Yeah, brilliant. Adam, let's uh, talk about what you're doing now. Particularly, I'm curious to learn more about the fact that you said the current job has challenged, I think you said, your leadership style and caused you to, to shift it slightly. So do you mind talking to, to listeners about that, please? Of course. So my current role is, is chief exec of another professional body, this time Association for Project Management. Again, quite a big sector shift from special educational needs to project management. That was, uh, I think, caught lots of people by surprise. In some ways, there are many similarities. In other ways, many differences. But it's a, it's a larger organisation uh, a larger leadership team, and I think they uh, they have a challenge here, or we have a challenge, I should say, which is quite typical of what happens in many professional bodies, which is there's a kind of tension between the creativity and innovation of leadership that you need to grow and develop and change an organisation versus the kind of uh, cautiousness, the structure that supports long-term sustainability uh, of a professional body, you know, the the kind of reputational face, if you like. And trying to get the right balance between those two can be challenging. And I think what I found in coming to APM is that my default is to do probably more of the former than the latter. I'm a risk taker. But like I said to you early on, that, that means I also try and surround myself by people who aren't risk takers because they challenge my thinking on that so it kind of works yeah. but 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 in terms of my own leadership style what i've found is i've got people in this organization who have been here a long time they like what the organization does it's a safe organization they understand it it kind of has its place and they don't really want it to change and you've got others who are you know we, we've got to be ready for the the members we're going to have in 10 years not the members we we've got now and, and and they really want to kind of shift the organization on and i think that different pools of thought I think exist at all levels of the organization as I say it's not just our organization I think it's true of professional bodies but it does present an interesting challenge for how you deal with that as 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 a leader particularly because I have my own bias as well in this and if I just go with my own bias then what do I do exclude half of the organization um, in a very visible way that's clearly not a good thing to do so what I, I mean I've been here a year now and I've worked really hard I think to try and and both drive change within the organization but also to reach out to those people who are maybe more reluctant to try and bring them on that journey as well and actually in some occasions they've said but with very good reason why things shouldn't be changed and we haven't so part of that process has been how do we identify those areas which really need to change and put our focus behind them and and protect the other areas as well so it's been a very much a a learning curve but uh, a good one i think seems to me that it brings it back to one of the fundamentals of, of leadership, which is relationship building, having having conversations, right? So you can get those different viewpoints and perspectives and understand people's challenges and, and, and concerns. And if we're not out there actively building relationships and talking to people, it's it's very difficult to to do our job effectively as a leader, isn't it? I think that's right. Relationships are absolutely crucial. I, I mean, just a, a brief story about my childhood, if, if, if I may indulge in that for a moment, which is I went to a, a, a primary school, which was kind of the, the local state primary school. It was quite a rough primary school, in all fairness. You know, the kind of fire brigade would turn up a couple of times a week to get somebody's head out the railings type of school, you know. <laughs> I ended up getting a, a place in the local private secondary school on the assisted places scheme, if you remember, when that was a kind of funded place, if you like. And it was really interesting because all the children I'd been in primary school with thought I'd gone posh 
because I joined this kind of local private school. But all the children in the private school thought I was kind of like the scully off the estate, right? So I had some kind of you know, seven-year identity crisis. Am I supposed to be posh? Am I supposed to be not posh? <laughs> Who am I supposed to be? But the reason I tell you that is there was a real kind of uh, halo effect that came with this, which was that I had kind of two groups of friends, if you like, and, and actually they, they, they kind of mixed in the end. But what it meant is that I learned to be able to get on with very different types of people from very different backgrounds with very different opportunities in life. And I also understood where they were all coming from. You know, I wasn't judging from one place to the other either way. And I've carried that through my career with me. And it means now when I meet people, if I'm meeting somebody who's a multimillionaire chief exec of a global corporate, or or, or if I'm meeting somebody who's, you know, trying to get a, a volunteer charity off the ground with, you know, on a shoestring, you know, or something like that. I, I, I can get on with both of those people absolutely brilliantly, and I understand, and I, I get it. And and it was just interesting how you say about relationships. Sometimes it can come from things that you least expect, sometimes challenges in life, but it can it can sometimes come back to be the thing that really helps you. Yeah, absolutely love that. What wonderful story. Adam, I've got a couple of slightly more quickfire questions that will start to bring our, our conversation to a close. Mm. The first one is, what would you say is one book that has really had a significant impact upon you? Well, I've read many books, <laughs> um, lots of leadership books, of course. Uh, so I'm going to discount the leadership books for a moment because I struggle to pick between them. But I'm going to think about a book from my early career which was a book by a guy called Joseph O'Connor, and it was called An Introduction to Neurolinguistic Programming. And it wasn't particularly about leadership. Uh, and I don't know how, how, you know whether your listeners will be familiar with neuro, NLP, Neurolinguistic Programming, but it's essentially a tool, uh, an approach, whatever you want to call it, which allows you to understand why people think in a particular way, and, and more than that, to influence how people might think, and to control your own emotions and build rapport quickly with people and build relationships quickly and to understand the kind of, if you like, the musical dance of a conversation. And that was really, really powerful uh, for, for two reasons. One, one, it helped me at the time because I was uh, at the time training to be a clinical hypnotherapist, right. which is another story altogether. But actually, uh, you know, whether it be as a, as a leader or even as an employee in, in an organization at any level, that ability to actually get on well with a whole variety of different people and to do that instantly you know that that's been really powerful and that book got, gave loads of very practical examples cross sector as well so everything from education to sales to leadership to everything um it was really really useful and i still use some of those techniques today do you know what that, that's fascinating about 10 minutes ago i had a little inkling a little voice in the back of my mind said i i suspected you'd been influenced or done some learning around NLP or neurolinguistic <laughs> programs, especially when you're talking about the ability to really step into somebody else's shoes and just your use of language during this conversation. I, I sense you as somebody who was really tuned into that. <laughs> Interesting. I'd not picked up on that myself. I, I shall listen carefully to the recording. Yeah, well, it's testament to that, to that book, I think. <laughs> what is one item other than your mobile phone 
that if it was lost, stolen or broken, you would immediately find yourself going out to, to replace? Well, do you know, it's interesting because I wrote down mobile phone first and then I crossed it out because I thought everybody's going to say mobile phone and you're going to say I'm not allowed it. And I was right. <laughs> um, so the, the, the one for me, actually, uh, it, it, a very practical one, but it's actually a standing desk, believe oh. it or not. So I invested in a standing desk about, uh, in, in, in my home office during the lockdown, and it was only a, a cheap one that I got. But it's brilliant, and I think it's 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 a bit like you know if you've ever upgraded to two bathrooms instead of one, and you can never go back. I think once you've had a standing desk, once someone's had well two bathrooms desk, and a standing desk. <laughs> quite. Once you've had two, two, a standing desk, you can't go back to a normal one then. Um, and it's great; it kind of just goes up and down as you wish. And and for a job like mine, where actually you can spend a lot of time on certain days, you know, at the desk and so and so on, actually. You can't go wrong than uh, investing in a good desk. Yeah, and of course, listeners won't be able to uh, see this because we can see each other, but they can't. But I always, always record the podcast at my standing desk. It makes such a difference to my energy and concentration when I'm doing it. If I try and sit down, it's just uh, it's just not the same. And final question, Adam, what do you think are three essential qualities for leaders today? Again, a really challenging question for the, for the for the end here. I think I'd start off with the need to be kind of fair and inclusive. I, I think sometimes as a leader, you've got to make some really hard decisions and sometimes decisions which which are the right for the organization but don't necessarily work for individual people. And they can be really challenging uh, for you as a person. But knowing that you've been really uh, inclusive and fair about how you're going about doing that and transparent, I suppose, I, I think is, is absolutely crucial. The second one for me is I think you've got to have courage. And, and I think that's probably come through some of the things I've said today in terms of doing the right things and everything else. Uh, the, some of the best leaders I've, I've ever worked for, when I think about why, it's because they've been prepared to challenge the status quo where they know it would make a difference. Uh, and, and that really takes courage sometimes to say the thing that everybody else might be thinking but nobody else might say it and then the last thing i think is around having really sound judgment because i think as a leader you've got to make a lot of decisions Uh, some will have big implications others will not but even the small decisions i think if people start to see that you're somebody who has good judgment that really helps you to deliver what you need to deliver as a leader Mm -hmm. I said that was the last question, but it's my podcast. So I'm going to sneak one more, one more <laughs> in. Where does your courage come from in those moments where you have got to make a tough decision and you, you, you might be on the, the verge of wavering and making the easy wrong decision rather than that tough right one that we spoke about? Where, what's your personal source of courage? Okay, so I'll tell you something here now. I use something called the 3P filter. Have you ever heard of this? Don't think so. Okay. Um, uh, probably when I start to explain it, you'll recognise it's not mine. I've not I've not created this. I, I can't remember where I read about it now, but I read it in, in one of these leadership books probably that I talked about, which I so easily dismissed before. So the idea is that when you've got to make a, a really hard decision, you can kind of ask yourself three questions and the, or three tests, if you like. So the first one is the kind of the, the newspaper test. Uh, so if the decision that you were, were going to make was published on the front page of a national newspaper, along with all the evidence available that you know to you when you were making that decision, would you still feel confident and proud to walk outside, everybody looking at you, knowing that you'd made that decision in those circumstances? That's the first one. The second one is the parent 
test, sometimes oh, nice. called the child test. And the idea is if your child had to make the same decision that you had to make, or it could be a close friend even, but someone that you care about, they have to make the same decision that you're going to make, and they come to you for advice. You ask yourself, what advice would you give them? And the reason for doing that is that you will often have a much higher threshold of ethics and morals uh, for other people and you might do for yourself so when you start putting someone else in that situation you think well would, would i would i tell them to do this or not so that can be a really good way of challenging and and, and then the third one the pillow test sometimes the sleep test which is can you sleep easy at night with a decision that you've made and if the answer is no don't be afraid to change your mind brilliant i'm so glad i asked that extra question because what a little, little gem to finish on Adam, thank you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. It's gone super quick, um, which must mean it's been packed full of uh, insight and value. So thank you so much for joining us. That's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. There you have it, folks. That was episode 101. And I really hope you enjoyed it. But as always, I really hope that you got value from it. And if you did, please connect with me and let me know what you thought on LinkedIn. I'm on there as Ben Morton Leadership, so I should be pretty easy to find. And finally, if you've got just three minutes to spare, I would be hugely grateful if you could rate and review the show over on Apple Podcasts. But that is it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you again soon. And until then, lead on. Mm -hmm.